0: Well then, with a view to the help and guidance of God, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read, a passage that maybe some of you even memorised in uh, childhood. I remember myself, like others, being given this passage to memorise, interestingly not in the Sabbath school but in the ordinary day school. That's a reminder of how schools used to view the importance of teaching the scripture. Isaiah chapter 52. And uh, we'll take as our text really for today and tomorrow uh, the words of verse 13, which are an introduction to the whole whole passage that we read. Behold, God says, My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And he then goes on to describe the process through which that actually takes place. Surprisingly, he has to sink very low first. But when that process is finished, he will be extolled, exalted and he will be very high. Now, of course, with a New Testament in our hands, um, there's no doubt that the prophet is speaking concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophecy here is referred to quite often in the New Testament. Um, One particular example is one that I hope to look at with you on the Sabbath evening, eh, God willing, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Ethiopia is on a journey back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia and he's reading the scroll of this prophet and he's reading this particular chapter and he is anxious concerning the identity of the person spoken of. Who is the servant of God in this passage? Is it a reference to Isaiah himself? Is it a reference to Israel as the people of God? Or is it a reference to the man that had just been crucified in Jerusalem, who the apostles, of course, were proclaiming as being this particular servant, the Lord Jesus Christ? And you'll remember when Philip drew near to the Chancellor's Chariot, uh, he asked him what he was reading, and he told him what he was reading. And the man asked him, "Who is the prophet speaking about?" And the scriptures tell us that Philip immediately began to preach to him Jesus, as of course the person who is spoken of in the passage. So that's a, a clear um, affirmation that the servant here is the Lord Jesus Christ. The um, ancient Jews also used to recognize that this was a very explicit messianic prophecy, although through the centuries they've become rather embarrassed by that and have found different ways perhaps of explaining the passage. And uh, you'll see immediately why they do that, because it is extremely difficult to avoid the conclusion that the person spoken of in this passage was Jesus of Nazareth, whom they still reject as God's Messiah, but whose profile so obviously fits the passage that this prophet delivered so long ago. So it's about our Lord. But you'll notice that the prophecy is written from a particular point of view. It's written from the point of view of what we would just call a repentant Jew. It's written by someone who is looking back from a position of salvation now, looking back on how he used to think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and reproaching himself for ever having thought that way, because he now sees things so differently. Um, Jews or not, we can all identify with that, well, most of us can anyway, I'm sure Most of us can remember a time when we thought so differently of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we reproach ourselves for that because we see him entirely differently now. In verses 4 and 5, for example, you have that kind of reflection and reproach. And by verses 4 and 5, I mean of chapter 53, where this repentant Jew, who is now of course a Christian, A Jewish Christian, surely, he says in verse 4, he has borne our griefs, that's what he did, and carried our sorrows, yet we, esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Whereas in reality, he says in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace. Was upon, And so in many respects it relates to what Mr. Macdonald was speaking about on the Thursday evening when they shall look on him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn. Well, here is a man who is looking on the one who was pierced and is now mourning for that. He's also mourning in connection with the fact that he had a participation in it himself. We, we saw him. We esteemed him that way we considered him that way. And of course, when we think about Christ, we we remember it in that respect too. It's always important, and I was alluding to this in my prayer, it's always important to remember that there's a profound connection between ourselves and the crucifixion of Christ. Not just in the sense that the crucifixion's blessings are attributed to us, but we were responsible for the crucifixion in the first place. Now you may say, well, i was not there well your sins were there which means that you were there and we must never forget that there's a there's a very real sense in which the the jewish and roman the jewish and gentile combinations around the cross are telling us that we all had a hand in this we all reject the savior but if we are christians today we also have to recognize that our sins were on that body that hung upon that tree. Is that not a thought, friend? That your sins were placed upon the body that uh, hung upon that tree. But I'll say something more about that, God willing, just a bit later on. You'll notice, too, that this repentant Jew uh, seems to be like us in another sense, too. We were thinking in the the manse last night of how uh, when you're converted... Um, you wish to tell everybody. And you wish everybody to see what you see now, to understand what you understand now. And this man wants to tell everybody that this man that they crucified is none other than the Lord of glory. But of course, in doing it, he discovers what we all uh, discover, and, and that's just that many people reject it. The chapter itself opens, although it's just still at the introduction of the passage, but the chapter 53 opens with the famous words, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now the arm of the Lord there is a reference to the fact that God's power was being exercised uh, on, on Calvary. God's power was seen in All the events that transpired that day when our Saviour hung upon the cross. That was the power of God. But who sees that, he says? Who understands it? Who understands that God's power was at work in this man's death? Who understands that God's power was at work in this man's resurrection from the dead? Why don't they see that the man hanging there is the man who is now at the right hand of God. Who has believed our report? And of course in terms of the Jewish people themselves, and you can think of this man still as their representative, that veil is still upon their eyes. Paul tells us that, well he told us that in the first century AD. He tells us that sadly when he was preaching himself, it was still the case that a veil remained upon them in the reading of the Old Testament. And uh, we're still so conscious of that, that although there are many uh, conversions today, more so than in any other period from amongst the Jewish people, it is still true of them in their reconstituted nation, and as a partially regathered people, it's still true of them that this veil lies upon them. It's true of us all by nature. But This question, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, shouldn't be understood as just a uh, a kind of hopeless kind of statement, as though, well, there's no success attending this message, or there's, there's no fruit. Because if you actually go back to the previous verse, that's far from being the case. Although many Jewish people do reject, did reject, still reject, The case throughout the rest of the world, he says, is very, very different. Many do see, and many will see. In fact, he says in verse 15, that this Lord will sprinkle many nations. Now, this word is normally translated sprinkle, and that may well be the right way to translate it here. And, in fact, I can think of a fairly strong argument for for translating it that way, because Some of the terms used in this passage seem to describe Christ almost as a leper. A leper. And so here, by using the word sprinkle, you would have the paradox that the man considered the leper is the man who sprinkles lepers from their leprosy. You'll remember that the the priest in the Old Testament had the duty of inspecting the leper and pronouncing the leper clean. And part of the cleansing ritual that the leper engaged in was to sprinkle um, the leper. And so here the leper becomes the priest who heals the true lepers. That that would be a strong argument for retaining that word. But I can't help but think that most of you will have a little note beside this word in your Bible. There will be possibly uh, the letter A or something like that. It will take you to an alternative possible translation which is the word startle. And I can't help but wonder if that is the real um, translation here. In other words, there are two sources of astonishment. In verse 13, you have the great statement that controls the whole prophecy, that my servant shall deal prudently, wisely, and the result of that is that he shall be exalted, extolled, and very high. But then you have two sources of astonishment. First of all, many are astonished at you because his visage is marred more than a man and his form more than the sons of men. So they're going to be startled by that. Startled by how low this man comes in his humiliation. But then they are startled by something else. So in the same way he shall startle many nations. Kings, in their surprise, shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall at last see, and what they shall not heard, they shall consider. So many nations startled, and even many kings shut their mouths. And they shut their mouths because they will consider what they had never heard before. In other words, the gospel is being preached to the ends of the earth. And what's more, not only will they consider what they had never heard, but they shall see it. What had not been told them, they shall see. Now I think the word see here carries the idea of understand and appreciate. It's a little like what I was bringing before you recently in connection with the proclamation of the gospel in Galatia. You'll remember how Paul describes his proclamation of the gospel in Galatia as a placarding of the gospel. As he preaches the word of God or preaches the word of Christ, Christ is being lifted up. He's being placarded as Christ crucified. Well, here, these kings are confronted with a message they have never heard before, and they see it. They don't just hear it, but they see it. Yes, they hear it, and they consider it, but the end of that consideration is that they see, they understand and they appreciate, and the effect of that is that they shut their mouths. Now, I suppose you could take that in two ways. Both are true, by the way, anyway, so in a a sense it doesn't matter, because both are true. One way in which it shuts their mouths is that it shuts their mouths from the um, aggression, the rebellion, and the opposition that the kings of the earth are often engaged in against the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in Psalm 2, which we considered not that long ago, The kings of the earth set themselves. They combine themselves together along with the judges of the earth in Psalm 2. There's your executive and your judiciary combining together against the Lord and his Christ. Let us asunder, break their bonds and cast their cords from us. That opposition stops. These kings shut their mouths. But while that's true, I think the real force of the expression shut their mouths is that they are simply astonished. There's nothing they can say. And the real reason for that is because this man who people despised and rejected has actually been lifted up to a height of glory and kingship that they could only dream about. Many people who seek power are never satisfied with power. They just want more and more power. You see that in the ancient uh, uh, kings who, who, of course, were in political situations where it was perhaps easier to acquire such power. Uh, that kind of power could be accrued by one person perhaps fairly easily, but they were always want to expend, uh, extend their empires. You find someone like Nebuchadnezzar who has a massive empire. Well, he's not happy with a massive empire. He wants a worldwide empire. Um, all these people seem to be like that. They, they want their name and their fame and their rule and their authority to extend to all the ends of the earth. But here they come across the exaltation of a man who appeared a mean and lowly man. And he's been raised, exalted and extolled very high to a position that they can't even begin to understand. Where he's raised up above all principalities and powers and sat down at the right hand of God. In that salvation wrought by thee, his glory is made great. It's made great indeed. And the news of that just produces astonishment. How could a man so low be raised so high? And when these kings shut their mouths, both in amazement and in ceasing their opposition, of course, the power of the gospel, the fact that they now see it, they've considered it, they've heard it, considered it, and now see it, means, of course, that they embrace this gospel themselves. And I say, as is one of these prophets that tells us so vividly that a day will come, and it hasn't yet come, friends, in the history of the world, a day will come when kings shall be the foster fathers and queens the nursing mother of the church. Um, because the western world is so decadent and our own nation so decadent we always feel that things are coming to an end it may be more accurate to say that things are ripening for a judgment but God's not finished with things God's not finished with this country God's not finished with any country it's still important to remember that some countries are experiencing their first blessing well, we've rejected these blessings long ago. There are promises in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, but right throughout the Word of God, of a, a millennial glory to cover the earth when kings will be foster fathers to the church and queens nursing mothers. You'll notice that these kings and queens are, are not just standing off. They're not just not persecuting the church that's a strange kind of way. That, that kind of negative way is a strange way to describe a nursing mother who is giving her breast to the infant or a foster father who, who takes a church in and cares for it. Well, that's foreseeing a day when the state will actually use her power throughout the world to nurture and nourish the Church of Christ in her ministry. Scotland saw a little of that for a while. It went and disappeared, but it will come back. In whose day, I don't know, but the Lord's word and his prophecies will be fulfilled. So there's a twofold astonishment here at the end of chapter 52, and it governs the whole prophecy. An astonishment at how low he went, how humble his beginnings were, and an astonishment at how low he sank, and at the same time, an astonishment at how high he rose how low he sank and how high he rose now really as I said to you the the main text that governs what I want to bring before you is is the one really that we'll go to tomorrow uh, God willing at its heart where we're told in verse 13 that the servant shall deal prudently and therefore he shall be exalted by his father extolled and be very, very high. But I'd like, of course, by way of introduction to that, to consider the depths, first of all, to which he fell. And to follow that, just as it's brought before us in the passage, not really going beyond it, considering how he appeared in this world, and how he made his way to the grave which was, of course, supposed to be the end. In verse 9, we're told that the people who oversaw the crucifixion assigned him his grave with the wicked. That was their intention. God overruled that intention. It was a a staggering truth that the Lord Jesus Christ, having been crucified as a nobody, was buried with more spices and more honours than ever any king ever was, because God had a reason for overruling that. But the fact that God overruled it right now shouldn't take away from the other fact that people assigned him a grave with the wicked. The Jews wanted the body down quickly. In one respect, they wouldn't have minded had it hung there for days, which was often what happened to crucified people, just to make a public Uh, example of them for days on end but they wanted the body down because the Sabbath was coming and they had their own intention as to where he was going to be buried and it would have been in some kind of scrap heap somewhere there's a a common belief that one of the reasons maybe the main reason Calvary is called the place of the skull is because so many skulls were there that there was a place where bodies were just carelessly cast certainly they assigned him his place Uh, but God, as we saw, overruled it. But I want to cover with you his appearance in this world until he goes to the grave, at least as it's described in this prophecy here. Now, in the prophecy, Christ's descent into the valley of humiliation is described really in terms of his, what's often called his passion or his sufferings. Uh, the sufferings in which his life and ministry culminated. It's a short life, and a shorter ministry still. I've often said that to you, I'm often amazed at it myself, when I think sometimes, if you're three years in a place, you feel you've hardly been in a place. That's all, that's all the time that the Lord ministered in this world. Three short years. And his life was a short life of 33 years. But his humiliation is described in terms of just the very last part of that. Now I'm sure we know that in a wider sense, the humiliation of Christ began long before that. It was a humiliation of Christ to appear in the world at all. His conception in the womb is a humiliation. The King of Glory appearing... Uh, in this world, being found in fashion as a man. Our Shorter Catechism reminds us of that when it asks the question, wherein in does Christ's humiliation consist? And it tells us that it consists in being born, and that in a low condition. And it certainly was a low condition in which he was born. So certainly humiliation attends his whole life. But the humiliation of this chapter is confined to his death or his sufferings and his death. Now I shouldn't say that absolutely exclusively because there's just a little reference in verse 2 to his growing up and his ministry. In verse 2 of chapter 53 we're told that he shall grow up before him, that's before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. <coughs> now these words are easily passed over, but they're very precious words. And there's I'm mistaken, there's a very sharp contrast between growing up before him growing up in the presence of God on the one hand and his appearance before men on the other. In verse 2, at the beginning we're told that he shall grow up before him in the presence of God like a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground full stop. But then suddenly he appears without any form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He grows up before his father. That's a reference to his seclusion in Nazareth. No eyes are upon him. No eyes upon him. He's living quietly at home, and he's working on a trade. He's not before the eyes of men here, he's just before God. But he's before God as a tender plant, And as a root out of a dry ground. Now, the dry ground is a reference to the spiritual condition that prevailed. I mean, we sometimes um, complain of barrenness ourselves, but barrenness is nothing new. Times of barrenness are, are nothing new, and we really need to remember that. Uh, When you catch the tail end of a blessing, as many of us here have perhaps, we, we may say that we got the tail end of a time of blessing. You tend to think of the time that has come upon you as a time that is unique. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. But the fact is that our Lord was born into one of these times. The state of the true religion, the state of faith and the state of godliness and the state of people's souls was at a very low ebb in the generation in which it was our Lord's lot to be born. People like Simon, who was waiting for him, or Anna, the prophetess, who was longing for him, or his mother Mary herself, who was a young godly woman, or his father Joseph. These people were not so plentiful as they would have been in other generations. Dry ground. And Isaiah tells us in chapter 11 of his prophecy That when the time comes for the Messiah to be born, the royal house of David, which was like a flourishing tree, is reduced to a stump with life inside it. Sometimes you see a stump of a tree and you think it's dead. But Isaiah tells us there's actually life still inside the stump, which he calls the remnant in chapter 6. Chapter 11 opens with a little shoot appearing beside the stump. Which is an amazing thing. Uh, sometimes you don't even relate the shoot to the stump. It's a little bit at a distance, it just breaks out the ground. But what it actually is, the, state revi- the, church, the, the stump reviving. Out comes the shoot, because the tree is going to come to a new less of life. In, in another form, in another way. Well, that's how the Lord Jesus Christ grew up. That's what the words actually mean. The tender plant or the sapling or the root coming out of the dry ground. The royal house of David is coming to life. But this shoot, hardly even, nobody, nobody noticed it. I mean, who noticed that man working at carpentry in Nazareth? Who noticed him? Nobody, really. Nobody. Except his mother. And, of course, his his father, his earthly father. But God did. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. God's eye was upon him from the start. He was loved by his father and he, of course, loved his father. And in the 30 years in which he passed in seclusion there, growing up before him, he pleased God greatly. Uh, when Christ, as the, as the first act of his ministry, when he went to be baptized at the Jordan River, that was his announcement to the world of who he was and what he was about to do. You'll remember that a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now that, of course, is a general term. It refers to general things that my son is always the one who pleases me, and always been the one who has pleased me. But there's also, a, there's also a blessing there placed, pronounced upon the son's life in these thirty years of seclusion in Nazareth. Living there quietly before me, like a tender plant and like a shoot, he pleased me, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But when he appears before men for his ministry, it's very different not for everybody because there are of course some who are anointed to recognize and receive him but here the writer of the prophecy this converted Jew is looking back and says it's very very different he may have been in the eyes of God a lovely tender plant and a lovely promising root but to us he says at the end of verse 2 no form no comeliness no beauty when we see him when he makes his manifestation to the world, when he appears, he says, no form, no comeliness, no beauty. Now, that's in reference to something specific, and we must understand it in reference to something specific. It's with a reference to who Christ claimed himself to be. Of course, the Lord announced himself to be the Messiah, first of all, to be the great king who was bringing the kingdom of God into the world? Of course, he, he later makes plain that he is even deeper than that, he is the Son of God. That the Son of God who has come to bring the kingdom of God into this world is just that, he is the Son of God. But it's that claim that they reject. He doesn't look the part. They're like Samuel when he was trying to identify the, the, the king. And uh, he passed over all the sons of Jesse, one after the other. And he he thought of them, well, this man looks the part. And this man looks the part. The world has its own ways of addressing people, identifying people, and evaluating people. And sometimes the church falls into the same mistake. Samuel there just fell into exactly the same mistake of trying to judge what God was doing by external things, by what impresses the world. Now, of course... (coughs) They had already, already made that mistake. When they chose Saul to be the first king, they chose him on the basis that he was head and shoulders above the rest, and that he was a powerful military man. <laughs> that's not everything, was it? That wasn't, that wasn't what God was looking for, and that's why it came to a disaster. Disaster. But Samuel was in danger of making the same mistake. Samuel was the very one who had rebuked them for, for thinking like that in the first place. He said, well, why, why are you choosing a king, and why are you choosing a king of this kind? And now when he's told to go and anoint the true king of God, he's falling into the same mistake. And the Lord, of course, rebukes him and says that man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Some people take that text and they run a mile with it to say all kinds of things with it, like God doesn't care about the outside of anything. God cares about the outside of everything. But what that text tells us is that man is impressed by the outward show alone, whereas God takes the heart into consideration. The heart matters to him more than anything else. And for these people, Christ just didn't look the part. It's the man from Nazareth, He wasn't raised in a palace. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like a king. I mean, where's the glamour? Where are the horses? Where's the retinue? Where's the impressive display of power? None of that's there. And the culmination of that is that he is despised and rejected. And last of all, he's to be crucified. We're told, of course, solemnly in verse 9, sorry, in verse 8, That he was taken from prison and from judgment. The word prison there means um, arrest or confinement. That reminds us that they had legally arrested him. Uh, They put him through some kind of judicial process. It was flawed technically, it was hugely flawed spiritually. It was flawed technically too. Nonetheless, They took him from confinement, from arrest and from a just judgment in their eyes and they put him to death in such a way that he was cut off before God and man. Halfway through verse 8 there you have these solemn words that he was cut off. He was judicially executed, cut off from God and man and cut off from the land of the living. So for the prophet, his humiliation consists in his suffering, in his death, and in his burial. Now I want to start, just for the rest of our time today, just start making some headway with considering a few things about his suffering. There's three things I want to look at in all, but not today. Just begin with the first of these, and that's why he suffered. I want to move on to what he suffered and how he suffered. In other words his own bearing and his own conduct. But to begin with, why he suffered? Why did he suffer? Well, that's a good question. And of course, these Jews had their own explanation for that. Their explanation for Christ's suffering was that he deserved that because God was judging him. Now, when they said And when they concluded that God was judging him, they were both profoundly wrong and profoundly right at the same time. And that's just a fact. They were profoundly wrong and profoundly right at the same time. They were profoundly wrong because they were saying that God was judging him for his own sins. For his own sins. Which the Jews saw as being very great. Now, they knew that he wasn't a sinner in the way that other people were sinners. They knew that he wasn't a drunkard or profligate or uh, that he was engaged in any sordid sexual activity or extortion or anything of that kind. They knew that. But for them, his sins were more serious than that because he claimed to be God's Messiah. Now, the claim that he was God's Messiah itself was not the crime. After all, somebody has to be the Messiah. There's no way of identifying the Messiah unless somebody would claim to be the Messiah. The problem was that he didn't fit, and he must have been lying. And he was claiming to be somebody that he wasn't at all. I, I made mention of the fact that they, that they already thought he, he didn't fit in different ways. For one thing, they said he wasn't born in the right place. They knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, Judah you know that he did come from Bethlehem, Judah. They made the mistake of thinking that he was from Nazareth always. You know, it's strange how people are lost and condemned because they don't bother to think enough. They don't bother to investigate or to study enough. There are many people who die, they perish, they go to a lost eternity, they are in the bowels of hell itself, with a Bible having sat on their coffee tables or in their bedrooms. But they never really... They never really investigated enough. They thought he was from Nazareth. He wasn't. A proper, humble conversation with his mother would have told them the truth. But as far as they were concerned, he wasn't born in the right place. As far as they were concerned, too, he was born in sin. It was one of the things that the Pharisees used to throw at him. They said to him, You're teaching us we weren't born in fornication. In other words, you were, and who do you think you are to be teaching us? Again, a word with Mary would have been sufficient, had they bothered. And again, of course, like I mentioned earlier, he didn't look the part. No royal house, no palace, no obvious ancestry or connection to David. But there was a connection to David. Again, a word with his mother. Would have sufficed. A word with his earthly father before he had passed away would have sufficed To, On both sides, he was connected to the royal family. Now, that may sound strange considering his earthly father was not his father, but still it's true to say that on both sides he was connected to the royal family. Physically, he was descended through Mary, of course, his mother, who was herself a descendant of David. So he was a physical. Um, he had a physical connection to David. He also had a royal connection because his right to the throne did not come from the physical descent from Mary, but the fact that he was Joseph's effectively adopted son. Having a right to a throne doesn't depend on physical descent. It depends on other factors. Uh, it's Joseph himself was descended from David. And Joseph was the man who at that time had the right to sit on the throne. That's long forgotten. After the exile and the confusions and the upheavals, that's long forgotten. But if you were to go up and down through the land and say, who has the right today to sit upon the throne of David? It's this humble man in Nazareth, Joseph. And therefore his son, the Lord Jesus Christ has the right to sit on the throne. So he has a twofold connection to David, one by physical descent, and the other because he has the right to the throne. Again, they didn't make the effort to find out. And as for his claim to be the Son of God, which they said effectively makes himself equal with God, well indeed so it does. But why not think whether that claim is true? And investigate it instead of rubbishing it. There was nothing there that couldn't be found out by humble and prayerful inquiry. No, friends. The things that will most remain unknown are the things you don't want to know. There are many things you'll know if you want to know. And you won't if you won't. Many a time people ask questions about the faith, they ask questions about the Lord and all these things, and they don't really want to know. You give a person a book dealing with something and they don't read it because they don't want to know. They don't even want to be convicted of it. They would like the little knowledge that they have to shield them, to protect them. Now, the fact of the matter is that these religious rulers particularly did not like Christ because he got at them. It would have been very convenient if he had just allied himself with them but the Lord was faithful and true and wouldn't ally himself to anybody in quite that way but he was attacking them too he was attacking their own way of life he was attacking their own religious integrity and therefore Christ was costing them something and therefore who cares what he says we don't want this man to rule over us And if we have the impression ourselves that Christ or Christianity costs us something, well, we would rather not pay the price. And we would rather live in ignorance, which we consider to be bliss, and find some reasons which turn out to be spurious for knocking him back. But the real reason is that there's spiritual antagonism. There's a conflict there. The fact is that we are all like those kings and judges who want our liberty. We don't want to be bound by religion We don't want to be bound by God. We don't want to be bound by the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want anyone telling us what we should do or who we should be. So it's convenient not to read the Bible, not to investigate any further at all. Of course, the fact was that they still couldn't deny that this man was performing signs and wonders. I I referred just the other day to the man who was blind from his birth, and these Pharisees tried hard to prove that that man had not been blind from his birth. They brought the mother and father into the proceedings and they said, Is this definitely your son? Are you absolutely sure that this son was blind from birth and so on? They're seething at it. They can't deny. As they said themselves in their private conference in the Sanhedrin, we can't deny that this thing has happened. The problem is, how can we contain it? And of course, just prior to the arrest, Lazarus had risen from the dead. Not, not a man who may still have been just alive, you know, like the young son of the widow of Nain who was being carried out in the coffin, whose beer was being taken out in order to bury him there and then somebody who could still technically be alive. As Martha said, he stinks. He's been three days in the tomb. And of course, when this man strode out from the tomb, the Pharisees say, well, that's it. Any more of this and we're finished. The whole world has gone after him. So if this man does perform miracles and he is not who he claims to be, the only conclusion is that he is full of the devil. That it's by the power of Beelzebub that he does what he does. He is an emissary from the dark side. He's more or less the devil incarnate himself. Misleading the people, misleading the nation. As Caiaphas himself said, it's far better for this one man to die rather than the whole nation perish. Because in Caiaphas' eyes, that's what is going to happen. If this man was to win the day and therefore he deserved to die. He deserved to die. And at one level there's a logic to that. If Christ was wrong about who he was, and if he was wrong about what he was doing, he was seriously wrong. The philosopher, well, that wasn't what he was primarily, C.S. Lewis, he was a professor of medieval history, but but he became a a famous Christian apologist, and he, of course, famously said that we can't escape this dilemma, he says. It's not technically a dilemma, but we can't can't escape um, a trilemma, if you like, that Christ was either mad or bad or truthful. I don't think there's any way around facing that. Christ was either mad, or bad, or truthful. It's it's astonishing how people don't want to consider these options. They'll say, they'll say something tepid and vacuous, like, "Oh, he was he was a good man." A good man. You don't get. Good men going round claiming to be the creators of the universe as C.S. Lewis said face it he's either mad or bad or else truthful these Jews came to a conclusion that he was bad if he was mad he might have been differently dealt with but he was bad and therefore He had to be put to death. The sad thing is that had they made more effort and had they gone down on their knees like little children, had they asked God to show them, are you revealing us something in this man? They would have seen something. They would have come to the place that this repentant Jew is in. And they would stop seeing a man without form and beauty and comeliness the way the world sees it. They would have begun to see a man who was chief among 10,000 and fairer than any among the sons of men. And so they pressed for the death penalty. And how fitting it was for them. They would have taken it as a kind of providence from God that the Roman death penalty was now crucifixion. And I suppose if they were to choose a, a death penalty, that's what they would have chosen. They didn't have the power to crucify anybody, but they pressed Rome into crucifying him. And how fitting it was. Why? Because crucifixion involved hanging a body up for public display. On, t- on a tree. And the Bible, of course, famously said, curse to see that hangs on a tree. Cursed to see that hangs on a tree. That's a reference to God's commandment in Deuteronomy, where God says, if someone dies cut off. Now, the expression cut off in the Bible doesn't just mean die, it means cut off from the people. Cut off from the people of God. Cut off from God Himself. Excommunicate. Now, someone can be excommunicated from the church on earth, but not be excommunicated from the church in heaven. There's no infallibility connected with that. The church, down through the years, has excommunicated. Many people who believe were in full communion with the church in heaven. But be that as it may, the fact of the matter is that in the Old Testament to be cut off meant that you were excommunicated. You were not in fellowship with God. In fact, you were under a curse. So anyone who died guilty of a terrible, terrible offence, died blaspheming or something like that, once they died, perhaps by stoning or whatever it was, their bodies were to be hung on a tree. And they were to be hung on a tree for a length of time until the whole of the community would recognize, here is a man that God disapproved of. Here is a, a blasphemer. Here is someone who is not in heaven. Oh, how fitting that we can hang this man on a tree. A visible sign of God's anathema. And of God's rejection. And of course their plan was successful. Arrested. Taken from judgment. And led to the slaughter. In his sorrow. And in his grief. And we considered him. That's what he says. When when they see him there going up to the cross. Carrying grief and sorrow. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In verse four he says, He has borne our griefs. Yes. Now this is him looking back. He's learned his lessons. It's our griefs he carried, it's our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him. Now this is how they all considered him. Stricken, verse four. That means struck really hard and struck judicially. That's what the Hebrew word means. It's always referred really. Uh, not, not absolutely always, but it's kind of nine times out of ten thing, to a judicial act of God. We esteem him struck there. If, you, if We thought that this man going up to the cross and hanging on the cross was actually being struck by God judicially. It's sometimes used of when God afflicted a man with uh, leprosy or something of that kind, or when God struck Achan, or when God struck Uzziah with leprosy on his forehead. That's a striking from God. We esteemed him stricken. The same thought is essentially repeated, smitten by God. The word smite is usually used in the Hebrew as it's used in the English for a fatal blow. God's killing him. God's putting him to death. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. In other words, what happened to him? was God's verdict on his life. God was excommunicating him in his death and by the way that he died, and that's why we assigned him his grave with the common criminals. Now, by thinking that way, that God was judging him for his personal sins, they were profoundly wrong. Why? Well, because verse 9 tells us that he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Violence refers to his physical behavior. His mouth refers to his speech. Nothing wrong, ever wrong. Nothing wrong in what he ever did. Nothing wrong in what he ever said. And I don't know if you've ever noticed how many testimonies there were to this sinless perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ in the final days of his life, even in the final day of his life. You know, just before he died, as his ministry closed, the Lord Jesus Christ turned to the people after three full years of ministry. This is when the Lamb of God is being examined. And he says, which of you can convict me of sin? What a thing to say. Imagine you standing up today and saying to everybody in here, which of you can convict me of a sin? Well, it wouldn't take us too long. It wouldn't take you too long to convict me of one. But here... He stands and says that. And amazingly, the testimonies all begin to pour out. And you'll notice that these testimonies don't just pour out from the mouth of friends. They pour out from the mouth of foes. And a testimony from the mouth of your enemy is worth, in some respects, far more than a testimony from the mouth of your friend. Pilate tries him and says, You take him, he says. I find no fault. him at all. Pilate's wife, the early church considered her a believer. But Pilate's wife in any way sent an urgent message to her husband saying, take nothing to do with this just man. Judas the betrayer, I have betrayed innocent blood. The thief on the cross, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion at the foot of the cross, this was a righteous man. This was the Son of God. Isn't that astonishing? Testimony after testimony to the purity of the supposed sinner. Of course, his friends who, who knew him best take Peter himself, who was with him in three years. And in many of these experiences, he was with him in a crucible and in a furnace, and he, he, he knew that his death was the death of a Passover lamb. That he was being roasted in a fire, essentially, upon the cross. And he describes this lamb of God as without blemish and without spot. That's my testimony of him, he says. Without blemish, without spot. As Paul said, he knew no sin. He didn't know it. It was not in his experience. He knew what it was, but he had no knowledge of it personally himself. So in thinking that God was judging this man for his own sin, they were profoundly wrong. The fact of the matter, on the other hand, is that in thinking God was judging, they were profoundly right. Why? Because verse 10 tells us, and here it is, and it's, in, in its own way it's quite a shocking expression. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I, I remember quite often when I started out, and most of the services, of course, were in Gaelic, and well, the ones I went to in those days. People often used to say that the, the Gaelic Bible was a little better here because it said, Be tolin in on the It was the Lord's will to bruise him. Because this seems kind of a bit too strong to say that um, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And certainly the the way it's put in the Gaelic there seems to soften it a bit. Uh, There seems to be a difference to us between saying it was the Lord's will to bruise him and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. But but with respect... uh, the friends who wrote the English Bible, this Hebrew word carries the idea of pleasure. It carries that idea. And the reminder there to us is this, that God's will is always what pleases him. As the psalm says, what pleased him he hath done. But it's not meant to convey that he takes pleasure in his son's grief. What he takes pleasure in is what is being achieved by the Son being put to grief, which is our salvation. That's what pleased the Lord. What it conveys to us is how intense the desire is on the Lord's part for the salvation of your soul and mine. And that is something, if we know ourselves, that's very difficult to understand. Why why anyone, never mind a God of ultimate purity and holiness, should be so concerned with our salvation as to be pleased to take this route. Yes, it pleased him. What pleased him he has done. Took no pleasure in the death of his son. Took no pleasure in the grief sustained by his son. But it pleased him to take that course of action. Because that course of action secured your salvation and I, mine. He has put him to grief. That's what the verse says. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And then God is directly addressed when you make his soul a sin offering, he shall see a family, he shall see his seed. But how does he make a sinless soul a sin offering? Well, he tells us that at the end of verse 6. In these wonderful words where we're told that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who are we? Well, he tells us, we're all like sheep who have gone astray, each to our own way. You're full of iniquity, and I'm full of iniquity too. We have no idea how many iniquities we commit. Even, as I said last night, when we commit one sin... We only identify it in relation to one commandment. God immediately relates it to a dozen commandments. All our sins are more sinful in themselves than we ever understand them to be. And as the Hebrew graphically says, the Lord caused all these sins to meet upon him. And the Lord laid them upon him. He did that, of course, on that solemn night in the (laughs) Garden of Gethsemane, when the Lord pressed these iniquities upon him and he went to his trial and he went to his cross as a man of sorrows and full of grief no wonder he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because he was carrying that burden some people take the description that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as being true of him all the time now that's open for argument maybe maybe not But I think in this passage it is a reference, it is always a reference, right through the passage the references are constantly to what he was that night, to how he was seen, how he conducted himself, how he was being conducted, and they saw him making that journey to the cross and hanging upon that cross as a man who was laden with unimaginable sorrows and laden with unimaginable griefs. He has borne our sorrows. And he has carried our griefs, our sins. That's what he hung there for, our sins. And in some ways, of course, it seems so unjust. As Christ said, "To render." Um, I was forced to render what I took not. It's a reference to restitution. You know, if you if you were guilty, let's say that you stole a sheep, God's law required that you that you pay back fourfold. Uh, oxen, I think, is fivefold. Well, it's the sheep fivefold and the oxen fourfold. God has a way of restitution. Christ says I, I paid back what I, I never stole myself in the first place. That's so true. He he just paid so much for what he had never stolen himself. But of course, the primary reason it's not unjust is because It wasn't his father's will alone that he stand there, but it was his own will too. All our complaints about the injustice of one person suffering for another and the other person go free absolutely disappears when we consider that he chose to stand. I freely and voluntarily take the place of these people and I pay the price for their sins knowing that by by doing so, I actually change their lives and I change their destiny. Like I said last night, salvation is not about getting off a hook. Salvation is about making people in his own likeness, in his own image, genuinely saving them into an everlasting unity and fellowship with himself. There's only one way to do that, and it pleased him to do it, and it pleased the Father to authorise it. If it wasn't for that, you'd be in hell, and I'd be in hell, and there'd be no way out. No way out. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He suffered for us. All these things open out so much further. I've gone so far past my time. Mr. MacDonald said that he had the excuse of old age. I don't quite have that excuse yet. I did have more to say, but God willing, I might take it in sometime later, because as well as why he suffered we need to look at what he suffered and the way in which he suffered it and how God rose him out of it. Let us pray. Eternal One, we pray for true gratitude in our own hearts in light of the One who was willing to be a sin offering who took sin to himself to such an extent that he could speak of it as his own. And it was his own. It was laid on his back. And we pray to recognise all our own sins as being there. And how wonderful that is to contemplate. It brings shame, but it brings joy and gladness too. And in anticipation of the Lord's Supper, help us to understand that our sins were there at Calvary and that he atoned for them. Bless our meditation upon the truth in all its inadequacy and we pray that it may lead us to the scriptures themselves and to the fullness that lies there. In the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's say close singing in Psalm 22. Psalm 22. <laughs> the converted Jew in Isaiah 53 said that they hid their faces from him. That's because they esteemed him so absolutely cursed, they actually hid their faces. But before they hid their faces, we're told that they laughed at him and abused him in verse 7 of the psalm. All that me see, laugh me to scorn, shoot out the lip do they. They nod and shake their heads at me and mocking thus to say, this man did trust in God, in other words, supposedly that he would free him by his might. Let him deliver him. Of course, that came to fulfilment when they said, come down from the cross and save yourself. Let him deliver him, since he had in him such delight, supposedly. And then the Lord himself says, but thou art he out of the womb that didst me safely take. Here's the root shooting out and the tender sapling. When I was on my mother's breasts, thou me to hope didst make. Isn't it wonderful to think of Christ as a a young two and three-year-old, still on his mother's breast, exercising hope? And I was cast upon thy care, that's through all his life long, even from the womb until now, and from my mother's belly, Lord, my God and guide art thou. Let's stand to sing these verses seven to ten.
1: Oh, love me. Love me.